wow, we had one hell of a day of college football this Saturday. We have to talk about it, beginning with LSU, Bama. Let's go. It's the number one college football show. What's up, again, folks? It's RJ Young. I am not on a step mill. Thank you for watching on the Fox Sports app, YouTube, or listening wherever you get your podcast. Today on the show, we got to talk about Bedlam, what Dave Pass kept referring to as Final Bedlam, as if they're never going to play this game again. Maybe that's true. We will see. I will give you my opinion about what should happen and what might not happen. Georgia getting scared by Missouri, but only to do what Georgia normally does. A little bit about Ohio State getting scared by, of all people, Rutgers. Some implications for SEC Saturday next week because Ole Miss came through against AM. But first, let's talk about the big SEC game of the week, the one with national title implications, the one SEC West division implications. That would be number eight, Alabama, beating number 14, LSU, 42-28 to 28 in Tuscaloosa. And as much as we talked about how this game felt like it was going to be between the LSU offense led by Jaden Daniels versus the Alabama defense led by Dallas Turner, it turned out to be kind of true. But what, what was remarkable was how these two quarterbacks at these two programs decided, no, no, we're going to put on tonight. It's a night game. It's huge in the rivalry. We understand that there have been eight national titles over the last 20 years between these two teams. Yeah, man, let's get it on and popping and get after it. And you got to see that early and often from Jaden Daniels and Jalen Milrow. I found it really fitting that both of those quarterbacks threw for 219 yards apiece. Jaden Daniels rushed for over uh, 160 yards, 163 total yards rushing, put on a TD. And then you got Jalen Milrow doing what no Alabama quarterback had ever done at Alabama rushing for four TDs in one game, 219 passing, 155 on the ground. But this game was so tight. It was back and forth and back and forth. It was tied at 28s. And we were, I was thinking to myself, hey, man, first team goes up by two scores, has an opportunity to win this. But that came on a little bit sooner than we thought it would be, but not before Jaden Daniels threw what was a great pass that happened to be tipped and intercepted. That changed the game, right? We're talking about holding serve like we play in tennis when we're just playing football. Can you stop people, right? Didn't matter that Malik Neighbors had 10 catches for 171 yards and a TD. It matters that he just missed catching a pass that was actually put there by Garrett Nussmeyer, who has never seen a throw that he doesn't think he can make. You got to see guys like Josh Williams come of age. But really, the game, or the game, the play that changed the game for me is Dallas Turner getting right into the grill of Jaden Daniels. And I am a tremendous Jaden Daniels fan. Loved him with Arizona State, mostly because he's not just a great passer, really great at taking care of the football. And with Brian Kelly as head coach and Mike Denbrock calling the plays, they kind of let that dude do what he needs to do, whether it's running or passing. So you're going to see him get ragdolled more often than you want to see anybody get ragdolled, especially if they play quarterback for you. And coming into this game, he was having what many believe was a Heisman-level campaign. Even though they had the two losses, you beat Alabama and you run the table and you beat a Georgia in an SEC title game, it would not have been difficult to see Jaden Daniels not only in New York, but raising the Heisman Trophy first Heisman winner at LSU since Joe Burrow. Wasn't to be because he got hit right on the edge of what some people would consider targeting. I didn't think 
that the hit by any means was dirty, but it doesn't have to be dirty to be targeting. Still, Dallas Turner got in there, got underneath Jaden Daniels' chin. It was enough to knock Jaden Daniels out of the game. And at that point, it just didn't feel like LSU was going to have the horses to really overcome a 14-point deficit against an Alabama team that had full control on offense and was doing what it needed to do on defense. I found this game really exciting. I did not expect it to be as exciting as it was right to the end, but that's what we got. I cannot tell you how impressed I am with Jalen Milrow and his maturation throughout this season. He is one of those guys that you will look back at the start of the season and be like, I don't know if that guy's the starting quarterback. And then you got to see what else they had, notably Tyler Buckner, right? And Ty Simpson. And then you're like, oh yeah, so number four, he's really our best option at quarterback. What if we build the offense around what he can do well? Now, Jalen still holds on to the ball too damn long, and his offensive line gets roasted because he takes sacks, but that's not their fault. He holds the ball. I know of another great Alabama quarterback who held the ball too damn long. His name is Jalen Hurts. All he did was help them win a national championship, and that is the trajectory that this Alabama team is on, right? Think about this. They got the loss to Texas. College football playoff selection committee thinks Texas is pretty good. They still got the one loss and a road to the Big 12 title game. We'll talk about them in a little bit. But now you look at Bama, who gets to clinch the SEC West Championship next week with a win or an Ole Miss loss. Going to talk about that a little bit later on, too. But it's not difficult for me to see how Alabama could not only get Jalen Milrow to the Heisman ceremony, you win the rest of the way, you beat a Georgia in an SEC title game, but play for the national championship because this is who Nick Saban's Alabama teams have become. They are inevitable. This is not the best Alabama football team that we have seen. Not by a long stretch, but it is still good enough to win a national championship. That is the bar for success in Tuscaloosa. And this game, really, at night, with everybody watching it, the performance that he put on, the best of his career, I might add, with over 350 yards of offense, yeah, I think Jalen Milrow is that dude in the SEC right now. And because Brock Bowers has not been able to play the last couple of games and because Jaden Daniels went out in a loss, you got to start looking at Jalen Milrow as perhaps your SEC Offensive Player of the Year. Tremendous, tremendous story that is still developing. Really love that dude out of Katie Tompkins. Love getting to talk to him on this here channel, the YouTube channel, I should say, when he was still committed to Texas. You won't find anybody that doesn't like Jalen Milrow. He is fun, he's in it for his teammates, and you want to go and block and catch for him. That's what Nick Saban has at quarterback, and that's what Tommy Reese is calling the plays for. Really excited to see what Alabama looks like the rest of the way and whether or not maybe, just maybe, the college football playoff selection committee thinks that they're a top 10 team. Or excuse me, not top 10, top five team. They are a top 10 team. Maybe I think they're a top five team. We'll see. I got to do this thing called the top 25 that you can read really late or really early, depending on where you are, on the Fox Sports app, foxsports.com. Soon as the game's finish, we get that thing up and running, and I have lots of time to think throughout the day. We'll see where I put people. Let's go on to the big game in the Sooner State and the biggest game of the year this side of Texas for me. Number 22, Oklahoma hangs on to beat number 9, Oklahoma 27 to 24 in Stillwater at a thing that Dave Pash kept calling Final Bedlam. I mean, I kept wanting to see Final Countdown, something like that, because, you know, saying Final Bedlam means like they're never going to play this game again. 
Hell, they're not going to play it anytime in the future, but I would expect them to play it again because, well, Oklahoma State's got a real, real good all of a sudden about this series. Having got this win to kick Oklahoma on the behind on the way out the door to the SEC. And really, this game started about as well as it could have for Oklahoma, right? And then Oklahoma State took those shots and came back. I was impressed with a number of players in this game, but none more than Ollie Gordon, who had over 33 rush, I think, yes, had 33 rush attempts for 137 yards, two TDs. That's a really great day for most tailbacks, but for his standards, that's not even hitting his average the last five games. Came into this game averaging 195.8 yards per game against Big 12 opponents, and that dude went for 137 and two TDs. I found it really frustrating that Oklahoma had created five turnovers of Kansas and Oklahoma State in the last six quarters, still couldn't do much with that offensively, and that was the game, right? That was the game for me. Drake Stoops had a career day, 12 catches, 134 yards, and a TD, but he has to get to the sticks on fourth and got to have it. However, he didn't call a sprint rollout that was short of the sticks either. He don't call plays, all right? I'm going to also throw in here, there were three receivers at Oklahoma that had over 90 yards receiving. Dylan Gabriel went 26 of 37 for 344 and a TD and a pick. But none of those four men call plays. That is a man named Jeff Levy who in crunch time could not come up with something that would go get points for Oklahoma in those gotta-have-it situations, and that is frustrating because that goes back to Texas. Dylan Gabriel made the Texas win happen by outrunning everybody and expecting to get tackled, all right? That dude ain't supposed to be rushing for 100 yards on nobody, but he made it happen against Texas. They asked him to do this again against Kansas. He couldn't get it done. They asked him to do this again against Oklahoma State. He couldn't get it done. And I don't think that's really his fault. I think at one point or another, you got to stop getting cute and you got to draw up stuff that works. Give Tawee Walker the ball. That dude had one offer out of high school to Jackson State coming out of North Vegas, went the JUCO route, showed up at Oklahoma last year, had 62 total rush yards. In this game, his first carry went 23 yards to the house. Feed that man the rock. Put the ball back in Gavin Starchuk's stomach. He's proven he'll hold on to it this game. All right? Make the game simple for your offense to go get points. What you can't have happen is scoring three points in a game that was decided by three points in the fourth quarter. You have to take a look at, A, your play calling, if not your play caller. You also have to take a look at your field goal kicker, your place kicker, who's two of six kicking field goals going back to Iowa State, and that's September 30th, okay? If he makes a field goal, maybe it's a tie game. Maybe you get an opportunity to win this. That's two places you can take a look here. And then you got Brent Venables getting called for the unsportsmanlike conduct penalty as he's arguing to call at the numbers. If you're going to call it by the letter of the law, fine. That, I, I'll let that go. I'm not even going to get upset about that. The one that's going to catch us all, the one thing that was out of Oklahoma's control and, frankly, out of Oklahoma State's control is the past interference on one of the favorite sons in the state of Oklahoma that will be talked about forever and ever because you're watching this play and in the replay, it feels like my man is draped all over Drake Stoops, who, by the way, made the catch at the end, just didn't make it in bounds. If you get that 15-yard penalty and you get that first down, does Oklahoma go and score and go ahead, making Oklahoma State have to do what Oklahoma was attempting to do at the end of the game? We'll never know. All we will know is that Oklahoma fans 
probably wrongly, but will feel right in their soul. I'm going to put on a tinfoil hat and say the Big 12 engineered this win for Oklahoma State. I don't think that's true, and I don't think that this play is the reason that Oklahoma lost Bedlam on Saturday. However, it's really difficult to look at that play and know there was an official that had a really great advantage of it and didn't throw the flag. That man is going to stay up with that call for a long time is what we would hope. But, you know, he's probably going to go home and hire a Diet Coke and big, get out his big chief notebook and color with a crayon while watching other Big 12 teams. But, you know, that might be just Mike Gundy. Because that dude also can just find these playmakers that come out of nowhere. Like, we know Alan Bowman. I, I've known Alan Bowman, I should say. Going back to Texas Tech, when he threw for over 600 yards against Oklahoma State. Went up to Michigan, played backup, won a Big Ten title, got to the college football playoff, transferred back to Oklahoma State, put up 344 passing on Oklahoma in Bedlam in a win. No TDs, but also no picks there. I mentioned what Ollie Gordon was doing, but the guy that really took over the game when we expected Gordon to do it was Rashad Owens, who had 10 catches for 136, 6'2", 230. You look at that man, you see a tight end. Well, that's what he was playing. Before they moved him out to the numbers, it said, hey, small corner, do something with this. And small corners are like, nah, dog, there's nothing I can do with that. That man is just going to get at me. But in got to have it situations, it wasn't just Rashad Owens. It was also Tulsa's own Brennan Presley, eight catches, 97 receiving yards, holding all of the ball as Jared Kanick was trying to rip it out of his, his palms, man. I couldn't wait to tell him how excited I am for him, how proud I am of him putting off at a 918, staying near, going to Stillwater, going to get this big win for Oklahoma State over Oklahoma. All right. For Oklahoma State's purposes, they have a path to the Big 12 title. Full stop. That's what they earned today with the win. They and Texas could be playing each other for the Big 12 championship in which Oklahoma State would be playing for that New Year's Six Bowl spot. Texas might be playing for a spot in the college football playoff, especially knowing that Texas and Kansas or excuse me, Texas and Oklahoma State each have a win against Kansas. Going to need some more things to go Kansas' way for them to get back in it, but they're still in it. I'm also looking at this, and I, I got to say, Oklahoma State, it's not just getting the Bedlam win today. It's also putting the nail in the coffin for Oklahoma's college football playoff chances. Wild stat that I'll give you. Oklahoma has not lost to Kansas and Oklahoma State in the same year since 1997. That year, Oklahoma went four and eight. Bob Stoops was a year away. We got children that have come and gone through both of those institutions who had never seen Oklahoma lose to Oklahoma State and Kansas in the same year. And then they do it in back-to-back -back weeks after getting off to a seven and zero start. Seven and two, way better than six and seven last year. Now get it back up together. Maybe get Danny Stutzman back on the field, though Kip Lewis played really well. And you see what you can't make out of the rest of the season. And there's still a lot to play for, but I don't want to get that twisted. Again, Oklahoma State putting the nail in the car for Oklahoma's college football playoff chances, getting its eighth win in 118 attempts. I'll leave that out there for a second. Mike Gundy, been at Oklahoma State since 2005, since I was a junior at high school. It, it's him, right? 19 years we're coming up on. This is win number four. Four for Oklahoma State against Oklahoma since 2005. Pretty good, right? 
No one that he went 0 and 4 as a quarterback at Oklahoma State, but you know, we're not going to talk about that, or maybe I will. So, you know what? I guess Oklahoma winning 91 of 118 total games against Oklahoma State is just going to have to do for air quotes final bedlam. My God. I'm happy for y'all, right? You got to win, celebrate. You know what I'm saying? Getting my mentions on the tweets, in the Facebook, on the Instagram, tag me, do whatever you got to do. Just remember that it's 91 of 118. 91 of 118. All right? Sooner State, we run this. Go win a Big 12 title. Go go, go ahead. Beat the team that we already beat and gave you a shot to go beat. But you know what? Never mind. Never mind. Oklahoma State, Aggies, have at it. Have your Diet Coke, even if your favorite – even if your favorite flavor is whiskey, I got to tell the story on the way out because I, I, Mike Gundy is a content machine, just like Coach Prime. So he's asked, how does he do these things after games? He says, I go home, I got out a big chief notebook and a crayon, and I watch other Big 12 teams play while I have a Diet Coke, to which he was like, which Diet Coke do you like? Ah, there it is, Dave Wilson with it. Well, I love whiskey. For the uninitiated, uh, Mike Gundy's also a really good businessman and has his hands and things that go on around the business all above board all that stuff but i love that this man knows how to market to whom he's marketing to and i think that the big 12 is in really great hands as oklahoma and texas exit you're gonna have mike gundy on the days followed by coach prime big 12 media days i cannot wait for you to get here i'm gonna have such a good time because those two dudes are terribly entertaining entertaining on the west coast though that means something different on the west coast when they say entertaining they mean scoring points they mean scoring lots and lots and lots of points. And that is how we get to number five, Washington, beating number 20, USC, 52 to 42. Now, because I'm an Oklahoma fan, this does feel reminiscent of 2016 Oklahoma versus Texas Tech, where you had Baker Mayfield versus Patrick Mahomes and all of the offense. And you know what? That's how it felt from the word go with the Huskies down in a Coliseum that they still put a tarp in sections because they can't fill it up. Now, when I get to see Caleb Williams do his thing, I enjoy watching Caleb Williams do his thing. Also means he's going to put the ball on the floor. Okay. Also means he's going to make some plays that you would rather have back. But what you can also count on is if you play offense for the other team, you're going to go get yours. And since Washington is a team built to go get theirs, they could not wait to line up against an Alex Grinch defense that we have been pummeling for being so bad. 49 to Cal, 48 to Notre Dame, 52 in this game to Washington, 41 to Arizona, 41 to Colorado. It's just bad, but it kept getting worse. How does it get worse when Washington puts up 52 in a 10-point win against you? Well, you hit your scoring average if you're USC on offense, and then you gave up over 300 rushing yards to a team that does not major in running the football. As a matter of fact, Dylan Johnson had over 200 yards from the line of scrimmage and I think 192 on the ground against SC. Against Arizona State, Dylan Johnson rushed six times for eight yards total. Washington could not move the football on the ground against Arizona State. And against SC, they went for 300. Okay, now it gets even worse for USC as you took this L 
to a top five Washington team who improves to nine and zero and is sitting pretty to make the Pac-12 title game against an Oregon team that is surging. But I got to get at USC one more time here. At USC, Lincoln Riley is two and six against top twenty-five teams. Two and six this season against top twenty-five teams. USC is zero and three. They only beat the crap teams, or that's how it feels, right? And it gets even worse. Riley has already matched the number of losses against top 25 teams that he had for his entire tenure at Oklahoma. At Oklahoma, Lincoln Riley was 15 and six against top 25 teams. He ain't been at USC no three years. And this is where we're at already with three losses. And USC does not take losing well. Not, not, I don't take losing well, but it, it feels like it hurts them in a different sort of way. Meanwhile, Michael Penix Jr. did not have the best game of his life by any stretch. I don't even think he hit his passing average. 22 of 30, 256 through the air, two TDs and a pick. Ho-hum average for him. And yet he takes a commanding lead in the Heisman race because he is the best player on an undefeated football team for which he makes them go. You can't say that about, say, Carson Beck at Georgia. You understand what I'm saying? People try to say that about J.J. McCarthy, but we'll get to Michigan and who they have or have not played in a little while. Dylan Johnson will never have a better game. I take that back. He might have a better game, but I, I got a hard time seeing him doing better than 26 rushes for 256 yards and four TDs against a top 25 opponent on the road. That's tough. That's all the way tough. And then I'm looking at this, and I can't believe J- it's not even that Dylan Johnson was that great or that Michael Penix Jr. is that great. It's that Caleb Williams did his job. Like, dude's 27 to 35 for 312, three TDs, and no interceptions. Meaning that the offense at USC, once again, did what the offense is supposed to do. And for yet another week, I have USC fans in my text messages going, we need a new defensive coordinator. And I'm like, nah, that's the defense. That's, 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 that's what he wants. That's what Lincoln wants. That's, he had him at Oklahoma. He's kept him at SC. That's just what you have. That's who you are. You are the team that will score 42 and has to worry about giving up 52. That's not, uh, uh, I, I, I wish I could tell you that there was another way to do this. But being the Oklahoma fan that I am, I can only point you to 2019, 63-28 LSU. I can only point you to Oklahoma, Texas Tech because the defense couldn't stop nobody. That's, that's regular over there at Texas Tech. That's what they did. But at Oklahoma, where you expected to have a defense, nah, dog, that's just not what it's going to be. Now you're staring at a third loss, and you are going to get booted out of the top 25. With the reigning Heisman winner returning, that's egregious. Like, I, I, I got no other way to put that. You have what we all agreed at the start of the season was the best player in the sport. And what we still agree is the number one overall pick in the 2024 draft. And you have caught three losses before the first weekend of November is through. What else are we going to do with that except to say Oregon might put up 100 next week? Oregon put up 63 on the same Cal team that put up 49 on SC. It ain't going to get it ain't it ain't getting better, baby. It ain't getting better. You're going to have to wait and hope you can withstand what's coming your way because the the train is still coming. You still got Oregon, you still got UCLA, and then we will see. All right, back from the Pac-12 to another pivotal matchup in a conference championship race. Number seven, Texas, holding off number 23, Kansas State, 33-30 to in overtime. Man, this game, 
Kansas State had put up 41 and 41 against his last two opponents, Houston and Texas Christian. And they scored 28 and 27 in the first half of those games, respectively, giving up three points total. And then Texas said, no, nah, let's put the clamps on that. Let's stop y'all from doing anything you want. And a matter of fact, Texas goes up 17 to zero. And I'm thinking to myself, they get another score here. The route is on. Texas might be able to prove they are one of the best teams in the country with the backup quarterback back there. And then the backup quarterback, Malik Murphy, did backup quarterback stuff. He started staring down receivers and trying to throw balls to people that recovered. And Kansas State said, yes, thank you. We will take that with their 3-3 stack, where all they do is drop back and say, hey, if you can beat us, beat us, but we're going to let you run the football. So we get to the space where by the end of the third quarter, a Kansas State offense that had been all but anemic couldn't run the football, and they were one of the best running football teams in America, could throw the ball. So you get to 27-7, goes to 27-27, Mostly because Will Howard had decided enough is enough. 26 to 42, 327 through the air, four TDs and a pick. Outstanding bounce back from the Cats in Austin, Texas. Again, all this happened on the 40 acres. That's egregious to me. Phyllis Brooks had five catches, 76 yards. Four players had at least four catches and 69 yards as Kansas State receivers. That's not what they do. They run the football. DJ Giddens was averaging six yards a carry and was damn near close to closing in on 1,000 yards before this game. But Malik Murphy did Malik Murphy stuff. 19 of 37, 248, a TD, and two picks. Gus Johnson's on the call talking about, we might see Arch Manning at some point here because this is not going well. At one point, I watched Kansas State score three TDs in four plays. Three and four. You can't have that. You can't have that. You can't have that as Adonai Mitchell is going off. Eight catches, 149 yards, and a TD. But on third down, both of these teams were sorry. Four of 28 combined on third down. Predictably, this game gets to a spot where it feels like Kansas State can take control and your kicker can't take care of, can't care of business, right? You get into another spot where your, t- your kicker's got to tie the game up so you can get it to overtime, and he does that. So what do you do once you get into overtime and you force Texas to kick a field goal? Rather than just kick another field goal and get to double overtime, you say, I'm going to put the ball back in the hands of Will Howard on fourth and goal and say, please save us. And he gave a please save us kind of pass. Falling down, Jameis Winston style, throwing it up in the air. That's not what you want. That's not how Kansas State wanted to go out. I kind of get this. I get that Chris Kleiman wanted to go out with his best player and most important player and captain of his offense holding the rock. And not with a place kicker who had been both hit and missed all day. I get that, but that was not the move. The move was to take the chip shot field goal and force another overtime and see if you can't get another stop against the Texas offense that was having a hard time throwing the ball and was getting everything they could out of Jonathan Brooks and C.J. Baxter, who combined to rush for over 200 yards in this game, and they were outstanding. really liked watching what they were doing, 32 for 202 combined. But I also need to take into account here, there's no Quinn Ewers in this game. And at one point, I'm going, how do you rank Oklahoma behind this team, knowing that Oklahoma beat them head-to-head on neutral field? I still think that's the move. But it's moot now because Oklahoma lost to Oklahoma State and Texas beat Kansas State. But does Quinn Ewers make Texas a better football team if he's at quarterback instead of Malik Murphy? Because the thing that you need to take into account as we look at the college football playoff selection committee's rankings, they rank this Texas team Number seven, knowing damn well Quinn Ewers was not playing quarterback on Saturday. So 
by their guerrilla math, they ought to be a top four team when Quinn Ewers gets back because that's how much he's worth to them. He will make you a better offense. He will make you a more efficient offense. He will be able to get the ball to people not named Adonai Mitchell in the past game. Guys like Xavier Worthy, who is your home run hitter. Guys like JT Sanders, who is your matchup nightmare. Guys like Jordan Whittington, who again is a matchup nightmare. He makes them a better football team. Now, if and when he comes back, we will see. But I can't wait to see where Texas is ranked on Tuesday. Because if Quinn Ewers is ready to go and they don't jump four spots, we're going we gonna to have conversation about it. We're going to have words about this because I don't think anybody sees Texas clearly. For that matter, I don't think anybody sees Florida State clearly. But we'll save that for Sunday when we react to the Associated Press Poll's top 25 and my top 25 as we do this here on Sunday afternoon getting ready for whatever it is the college football playoff committee is going to do within suits in a hotel in Grapevine, Texas on Tuesday. I hope y'all is watching football. Because if y'all wasn't going to watch football, I'm going to pull your chain. Because that's all I do. I watch football and I talk about football. Meaning that while this game was going on, I was already getting set for the 2.30 window. Because the noon window was fire, right? But the 2.30 window had every bit of not just Bedlam, but number two Georgia taking on a number 12 Missouri. And they got the win, 30-21. to 21. It's a lot that was going up against Missouri in this one, okay? I kind of set you up for this on the Tuesday show, but I need to reiterate here. Georgia had not lost at Sanford in Athens since October 2019 when Will Muschamp in South Carolina jacked it for the hedges. It's been that long. It's been over 1,480 days since Georgia last lost in Athens. And yet at halftime, it was 10 up because for whatever reason, this Georgia football team does not mind going down or being tied against an SEC foe this season, as they try to become the first team in modern history to win three consecutive national championships. Now, it is one thing for me to tell you that Georgia is inevitable. It is another thing entirely for them to beat Florida without Brock Bowers. And it is yet another thing entirely for them to beat number 12 Missouri, who's got the one loss <laughs> to LSU of all people, without Brock Bowers. Okay, this for me is their most impressive win all year. It's not just because the college football playoff selection committee decided to put a 12 next to their name. I also rank Missouri. It's that you didn't have Brock Bowers there for this game and you lost your best defender at the end of the third quarter on the final play of the third quarter in Jamon Dumas Johnson. That dude leads Georgia in tackles for loss, five and a half, and was tied for fourth on the team in tackles. And I think he's tied for the lead in tackles, even without playing the fourth quarter. Now, he's fractured his forearm, so he's probably not going to be available this coming Saturday when they got a huge game against Ole Miss in Athens. But that's two star players that Georgia is down. And as much as I hate it when people say next man up, because the man that is down needs all the attention that you could possibly give him, I want to see how Georgia contends with not just not having Brock Bowers, but now not having one of your best defenders best pass rushers, edge players against an Ole Miss team that can beat you over the skull. Like, they can go score. Now, Missouri could go score, but I like to think that Ole Miss is some sort of Missouri 2.0 this year, especially after what they were able to do against a We'll get to them in a little bit, but as I get to talking about the teams at the top of the college football playoff selection committee's rankings, notably Georgia, Michigan, Ohio State, Florida State, 
I think it's interesting to ask, what do we expect from Missouri here? I mean, I picked Georgia, but so did everybody else, right? So what did Missouri show? Well, they showed there will be a handful in the Citrus Bowl because that seems like what's lying in wait for them after what Alabama did against LSU. And we'll see what Ole Miss can or can't do against Georgia. But it is a two-loss team that's really good. And if you put Missouri in the Big 12, they're probably contending for the Big 12 title. If you put them in the ACC, probably the same is true. You put them in the Pac-12, maybe not, but they're probably better than USC. You get what I'm saying here? It's a good Missouri football team that just came up against this thing called Georgia that has been a cut above everybody for the last two years in a row. Should Georgia be the number one team in my rankings, let alone the college football playoffs selection committee's rankings? Well, seeing as the college football playoffs selection committee and myself think a lot of Missouri and not so much Rutgers, let's take a look at what Ohio State did against Rutgers. Well, the number one ranked team in the country did hold off Rutgers 35 to 16. But remember I said hold off Rutgers. That ain't that ain't that ain't that ain't that ain't how Ohio State's supposed to beat Rutgers. You're not supposed to hold a damn thing. Coming into this game, Ohio State was 9 and 0 all time against Rutgers and putting up at least 49 a game in every game they played against the Scarlet Knights, all right? I would add here this ain't your mama's Rutgers, but it is my Rutgers because I remember when Rutgers went bowling and they were good that one year in Piscataway. They're back to being something like that. They won six games coming into this one against Ohio State. Rutgers is going bowling. It's a good football team, but it ain't so good that you can throw the football on it. And it ain't so good that you can't run trick plays against Ohio State because my favorite play of the entire day was the fumble ruski. That Rutgers ran against Ohio State as they gave up a 100-yard rusher. Now, also in here, Ohio State's just acting silly on Saturday is how I choose to look at this. Because teams that had not had a 100-yard rusher against Ohio State this year, Notre Dame, Wisconsin, Penn State, teams that had a 100-yard rusher against Ohio State this year, Purdue, Rutgers. Again, we're just acting silly here. However, the defense is still the defense. That's remarkable. They have not given up more than 17 points to any opponent all year long, giving up 16 to what I think is a plucky Rutgers team who was in it coming into halftime. Took a 9-7 lead at one time, right? Had Ohio State really challenging itself at halftime and has Ryan Day absolutely losing his mind on the sideline. I don't know if you were more affected by a Ryan Day offense that isn't firing like the Ryan Day offense that we expect it to or an Ohio State defense that is able to keep a lid on the end zone to the tune of nobody scoring more than 17 on us. It's fine if the Ohio State offense doesn't start running until the middle of the third quarter in any game it plays. Wild stat, Marvin Harrison Jr., who should be a Heisman finalist and probably will win the Bolitnikoff Award, had all the 20 yard, 25 yards receiving on four catches. But two of those catches? Touchdowns. One of those catches? the kind that only Marvin Harrison Jr. could make because Kyle McCord has come to understand. I have a cheat code wearing one eight. If you one-on-one him, I'm just going to throw it near him. It's almost like Megatron at Georgia Tech in that flex bone that they were running down there with Paul Johnson where, hey, Reggie Ball, just throw it. He's going to go get it, we swear. And that is exactly what Marvin Harrison Jr. has been doing for Kyle McCord all year long. But now, even without Mayan Williams, They still got a hammer back there 
in the backfield. Travion Henderson, consecutive games with 200 yards from scrimmage because 32 is a problem. 32 has been a problem since he was at Hopewell, Virginia, all right? I was yelling about that man for anybody that would listen when he was doing the damn thing in Virginia, and he's doing the damn thing wearing that 3-2 at Ohio State. They have somebody that can compliment. They got a Mega Buka there. They got a Cade Stover there. The offensive line is starting to show signs of life. They're starting to build in the way that we expect an Ohio State team to build if they're going to win a national championship. But the first thing they got to do is beat Michigan. That game, can't wait for that one. That's going to be Thanksgiving weekend as it is. And your man's going to be on the live tailgate there for which Michigan fans ought to be rooting for me. Because y'all are undefeated against Ohio State when I host a live tailgate. I don't know why Michigan fans got it out for me. I'm your lucky charm. Now, do I think that Ohio State will be the number one team on Tuesday, given that they only beat Rutgers 35 to 16, or given that Georgia did beat Missouri 30 to 21? I think that the college football playoff selection committee is biased toward the SEC, but they're biased toward the SEC for good reason. Show me somebody else that can win the national championship because it's been Georgia for two consecutive years. We got some Clemson in there, but then we got some LSU and we got some Bama. We got a Florida State in there, sort of, kind of, but not really, right? And even Auburn has won a national championship before SC, Oklahoma, Texas, Notre Dame. Like, I keep going down the list here. So if you want to put Georgia at number one next week going into yet another huge Saturday where it's survived in advance, I'm fine with that because the college football playoff is going to be four teams, and three of those teams are going to need to be there. One of those teams is going to be Florida State. But you know how I feel about Florida State because Florida State need to come from behind to beat Clemson in overtime. Speaking of Clemson, all of a sudden, Clemson heard what it needed to hear as they upset number 15, Notre Dame 31-23 in Death Valley. I couple ways to go at this one. First one is Will Shipley is out with a concussion in this game. So it was the Phil Moffat show. Turns out the Phil Moffat show is one that we all ought to buy a ticket to because that man carried the ball 36 times for 186 on the ground and two TDs. Outstanding. Cade Klubnik, pedestrian. Fine. He was decent. But he was decent against Florida State. Really? For me, the game was Jeremiah Trotter picking off this pass, taking it all the way back to the house on the pick six. He had two sacks, 11 tackles, two and a half tackles for loss. Huge game for a dude that is a budding All-American and the son of one of the great NFL middle linebackers to ever play this game. However, the dude that threw that pass that Jeremiah Trotter picked off, Sam Hartman. Yeah, not a great day for him. It's always a bad day when you got to stand up in front of media and say, hey, go at somebody on Twitter, go at me. Don't go at the coaching staff. Don't go at anybody else. Go at me. I lost the football game. Yeah, yeah, you're right, Sam. 13 to 30 for 146 and two picks. Yeah, you, 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 it's on you. Ain't nobody else to blame there. That's that's you coming in as the ACC's most prolific score, right? At with TDs, 110 pass TDs came in with. But now I got to look through this and I got to say it's not just that you lost to Clemson. It's that you lost a bad Clemson, eh, bad, bad in the Dabo Sweeney era, right? Four and four going in this one. Now they're five and four. And what I find funny about this is Dabo Sweeney got the red ass on his coach's show earlier this week. We, talk, we thought about maybe we're, not, we're going to do this on Tuesday night. We just too full of show. So I'm going to get into it right now. If you did not hear Dabo Sweeney using his coach's show to go at Tyler from Spartanburg, 
you should give yourself that five-minute segment because it's it's pretty good. Because you learned that Dabo Sweeney is a man of faith. You learned that it doesn't matter that he makes $11 million a year. He's going to coach team, I coach team. It, if you want to get the job, he's inviting you to apply for the job. He's also telling you that he can go anywhere else that he want to go, and he'll be wanted where he's gone because, well, they won two national championships. That's two more than they won since Danny Ford. Okay? You can, you can eat it, all of it. And he went at this boy for the better part of five minutes, seven seconds. And I got to say, Dabo got some points in there, but I feel like he was he was professing some things that might be worked out in therapy. Turns out therapy ended up being Notre Dame and Death Valley on Saturday because apparently the whole damn city of Clemson, all 17,000 of them in that tiny South Carolina town, decided, Notre Dame, you got to pay for Tyler from Spartanburg's sins. I ain't fine. Never mind, Xavier Watts turns out to be the guy I thought Benjamin Morrison was going to be. That dude leads the FBS in picks. Got seven. Outstanding. Never mind that I did see some real fight from that Notre Dame defense. What we have to remember is that they now got three losses, which means that the most prolific passer in Notre Dame history, Sam Hartman, if not the best quarterback in Notre Dame history, we can argue about that, right now is one loss away from leading Notre Dame to the same season that it had with Drew Pine and Tyler Buckner at quarterback. That might not actually be a quarterback problem Marcus Freeman has over there. It might be a little bit deeper than that. And you know how much I love Marcus Freeman. You know how much I love talking about Marcus Freeman. But you can't lose a game like this to a team like that when they're down like this, and then give Dabo Swinney the opportunity to cut a promo on all of us when he says, if Clemson is a stock, you better buy all you freaking can buy right now. Just when we thought maybe this ridiculous once-in-a-lifetime run by Clemson might be over, Dabo said, no, we'll be back. And you know what? Don't be surprised if we go get eight, nine wins the rest of the way. Don't be surprised that we found out that we got a little something left at little old Clemson. I never met a man who could care less about being cool and who is so himself all the time as Dabo Sweeney. Even when I don't think it's a good look, comparing something to, say, World War II, he makes this work for him. So Clemson fans, go, go, go ahead. Go ahead. Tell me how it feels to go beat up on Notre Dame. I'm also going to add in there, did you do something that Louisville didn't do already? Oh, yeah, that's right. Louisville ain't lost to Florida State. You lost to Florida State when you had an opportunity to beat Florida State. Now Florida State's undefeated with a 21-point win against Pitt. And now I got to tell everybody, once again, Florida State might be smoking mirrors because y'all couldn't finish it and because Kay Klubnik had a strip sack fumble that somebody at Florida State had good fortune to pick up forcing overtime. You did that, Clemson. I didn't do that. Thank you for that. All right. Last one we got to talk about because I got a little bit ahead of myself in the rundown. Number 10, Ole Miss holding off Texas A&M 38-35. What I found about interesting about this one was Lane Kiffin versus Jimbo Fisher. means we got two of the better talking, more personable, or I should say better personalities in the sport going at each other. And both of those dudes believe that they are the best play caller. Both of those guys need the play call sheet in their hands. And I really like watching them go at one another because somebody's going to take the loss so very hard. AM took a lead, 35-31, 434 left to go. Ole Miss responded with a nine-play, 75-yard drive, resulting in a Quinshawn Judkins CD run that gave them the lead and the win. 
And you could see Lane Kiffin was all about it because he believed what I believe, which is that, you know, that's the best five and most talented five, three team in, in the country. Right. And then as only Ole Miss could, they cut a social media probo over Jimbo Fisher's dead body. And I was here for all of that. It's a great 29 seconds. The social team at Ole Miss did the damn thing. Very excited for y'all. Jackson Dart went 24-33 for 387 and two TDs. Trey Harris had 11 catches for 213 yards. So you have a Jackson Dart-led offense that is firing against what I think is, if not a great Texas A&M defense, a talented Texas A&M defense. Getting ready to go into Athens, and they will go into Athens expecting to knock off Georgia. Not just because I'm saying it, but because there's nothing about this Georgia team that says they're dominant. And even Kirby Smart has said, we're not as dominant as we've been in the past. Turns out, it's still pretty damn hard to beat, okay? So, 26 straight for Georgia versus an Ole Miss team that could change the entire tenor of its season with a win. Because now, you're not only saying, Alabama, please do us a service and take an L because y'all are our only L. But you could get into the SEC title game. You might get an opportunity to play maybe Georgia, maybe Tennessee, maybe Missouri, maybe win an SEC title, maybe make the playoffs. So it's right there for Ole Miss, especially if they get a dramatic win against Georgia because the thing we learned about the college football playoffs selection committee is they don't give a damn what the scoreboard says. If they think you're good, they're just going to rank you ahead of somebody. So you go beat Georgia and you're Ole Miss. You have an argument with the college football playoff selection committee to jump everybody else into the four spot including Florida State. I can't wait to see what kind of new math Boo Corrigan tries to tell us about the college football playoff selection committee went through if Ole Miss is able to pull out that upset next Saturday. Either way, we'll be here live to talk about it. We'll be back on Sunday afternoon to react to the AP's top 25, to talk about my top 25, and get an early jump on what I think the college football playoff selection committee is likely to do on Tuesday. All right, that is going to do it for this episode of the number one college football show. Our number one college football show leads of screening are Jack Coakley and Torin Westfall. They make us better in the film room. Production assistant Kiara Santana puts the special in our special teams. Social producer Javion Duncan makes sure the recruits and the rivals see the cake we bake. Chaz Boulay is sending in the signal. Senior producer Catherine Cordaggi sees the entire field from the booth. Lead producer Tyler Wojak calls the plays from the sideline and the play snaps on my clap. We will see y'all right here on Sunday. Deuces.